Now, each week, uh, we say that God has called us to follow Jesus, love our neighbors, and build an economically and racially diverse church. But that, that kind of church doesn't just happen because we, we want it to happen. Um, it's only by, by God's grace working on our hearts, tearing down barriers that, that have long divided us. And so for the, the next few weeks, we're going to focus on uh, black history in, in our Sunday services going through the, through the end of the month. And we're going to honor those who have uh, suffered those who have overcome, those who have contributed, those who have enriched our country, who have enriched our faith. And I understand that devoting a month to one ethnic group may cause some, uh, some friction, some tension. Because some, some people might say, well, like, why are we devoting a month uh, to black history but uh, not, not to white history? I'm just going to keep going. Uh, others would say, well, why are we just devoting a month to uh, black history and not all... 12 months along the year, and, and I, as a pastor, probably need to do a better job of that, of bringing in um, some, uh, some, other, some other aspects. But it was uh, Carter Woodson, I've got a picture of him, he was, he's considered the first black historian, he was the, the founder in 1926 of uh, Negro Week, and it was the precursor of uh, Black History Month, and he knew that appreciating a people's history was a prerequisite to equality. Did you hear that? Uh, appreciating a people's history was a prerequisite to equality. And he wrote, if a race has no history, if it has no worthwhile tradition, it becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world. In other words, there's no amount of legislation that can grant you equality if a nation doesn't value you. Like you can have all the legislation you, you want. Um, and so while this month, I hope that you take some time out and learn something about black history, um, my, my hope is that as we, we go through these weeks, that we would uh, better see the image of God in our black brothers and sisters. Like we would see uh, the image of God in them. Romans 12.10 says, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Another version says, Give preference. So why does our church, why do we even celebrate black, black history? It's, well, it's to give preference. It's to honor, it's to, to demonstrate love. Galatians 6.2 says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, it's hard for, for me as a white guy to, to be able to carry burdens of people of color if I don't know any other story. Like, and, and the more that we know the story, the better that I can become at helping carry those burdens of my brothers and sisters. Philippians 2.3 says, in humility, value others above yourselves. And so uh, for this month, we just want to be extra and intentional about uh, our black history and, and valuing our people of color in our church and our neighborhood. And, you know, for me, this, this journey um, of encountering black history, is, it's been a slow process for me. I was a little late to the game, um, not, not because of animosity outright, but just because of ignorance. Like sometimes you don't know what you don't know, and, and ignorance isn't helpful because ignorance can lead to, to wrong assumptions and, and, and then wrong, wrong outcomes. Uh, ignorance can also be, be funny. I, um, uh, so out of college, I, I worked at a church, and every Tuesday night we had, we had a gym, and so we'd have open gym, number of guys, white and black, shooting hoops, and, and there was this guy in our church, great guy, great heart. Uh, he's probably like mid-40s. And uh, not, he wasn't like a social warrior, just a, just a regular guy. I remember one night he walked in, so this is early 2000s, and I, his socks, he had uh, FUBU socks. Um, you guys remember FUBU? I don't know if he's still around. 
Now, I had to educate him. I was like, Dean, Dean, do you know what FUBU stands for? No, I don't know what to What's for us, by us. Like, not for you. <laughs> That's what I was trying, trying to get across. He's like, and it's like his eyes got wide. He's like, oh, all right, all right. Uh, so sometimes ignorance, it, can, it can, be, uh, can be fun. It's a moment for me to have a conversation with him. And, and so I've been on this unexpected journey, uh, just getting to know people in our church, in our neighborhood, reading a few books. I've got a, a long way to go. Like, I'm just, I'm just getting started uh, but I'm realizing how much black history I, I don't know. Like, the more that I learn about black history, the more I realize I don't know. Um, I mean, in general, my history knowledge is lacking. When I think, um, so like when it comes to, uh, let's just take one category of like white inventors. I know Thomas Edison, that's it. <laughs> that is the extent of my knowledge of who invented, uh, and I, but I'm white, okay, clear, clarify, if anyone's wondering. So I've never had to think about who invented what. Because like, it wasn't, like I probably just made assumptions about who invented, you know what I'm talking about? So it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a question. And then looking back at when I was in high school, like I, at least I had the history courses. Like I had the classes. I don't remember it, but I had the classes, right? Uh, but most of, of what was taught included very little black history, because what was taught was uh, either it was written by, by white people, and so it's just, like, it was just history. I didn't even stop to consider. And, and the more that, uh, that I hear stories, and the, like, just a little Google search these days can give you a lot of knowledge, right? Like, just type in black history. Teach me something, Google. It's right there for us these days. So there really is no, no excuse, and, um, and so because History has been taught largely from a white perspective. In effect, every month is White History Month, even though we haven't called it that. Uh, but as, as a believer, I believe that ethnic diversity is an expression of God's beauty. Like the, uh, when you, uh, Najee referenced it in, in Revelation, when we're all standing before God, it's not all just one, one group there, one ethnicity. It's, it's the beautiful representation of peoples from all around the world um, and I, there's no single race or culture that can fully display the glory of God. And so that's why we need each other. That's why we need to worship together because we, we can see God differently in our stories, interpret how we see God. Um, and one day, Christ will return. And one day, history at that point, we'll be able to look back and see how God has weaved together our, our high points and our low points from Anglo culture, from black culture, from Latino culture, and see how God has been at work doing something beautiful. Amen? Amen. Our, uh, our leadership team is reading a book called One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race and Love by Dr. John Perkins. Dr. John Perkins, he was the founder of the Christian Community Development Association, and uh, he reflects and he, he had, uh, just admires what the, his organization has been able to do, and God's used them all across the country in community development. But he has some strong words for the church on, on race and, um, and, and the church. And he says that the church in America has much to lament, to, to have remorse over and, and to repent. He says our separation because of race, past misuse of scripture to justify slavery, lack of contrition for our collective sin. But then he, he gives this statement in the opening chapters. He says, but as I come closer to the end of my journey, 
I'm aware that community development can only take us so far because this is a gospel issue. The problem of reconciliation in our country and in our churches is, is, much, um, is much too big to be wrestled to the ground by the plans that begin in the minds of men. This is a God-sized problem. It is one that only the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can heal. It requires the quality of love that only our Savior can provide, and it requires that we make some uncomfortable confessions. So as we step in uh, into this month, um, I mean, black history is not just the history of African Americans. Like, it, it is the history of our country. It's not just of, of history of, of one people. It is our history and, and the role that, uh, that we have played in that. Um, and when we look at, at history, we look at Scripture. Scripture is time and time again telling us to remember. Like, all the festivals in the Old Testament were to point back to a time of remembrance. And, and when the children of Israel, they came across the Jordan River, God had them set up some stones, 12 stones, that were to be a memorial, say, hey, look back and remember what I did for you. And so us looking back is, is just a way for us to, uh, to show honor. It's a way for us to remember not to repeat the past. And it's a way that we can inspire hope. Um, because we don't, we don't want to repeat the past, especially, especially as white folks, right? We do not want to uh, repeat the past and what we uh, contributed to. Right? As, as, a, as a people. And so there may be some history that you don't know, things we don't want to, um, to repeat. There was a community in Tulsa called Greenwood in the early 1920s. I don't know if you're familiar with it at all. Um, so like I said, I'm new to the game. I just became aware of this a couple weeks ago. Uh, but in 1921, Greenwood was called the Black Wall Street. In fact, there was a, an author of Greenwood, Hannibal Johnson, he said a, a better moniker for what was going on in Tulsa than Black Wall Street would have been Black Main Street. He says what we're talking about really are sole proprietorships, mom and pop businesses, things like pharmacies, dry cleaners, barbershops, beauty shops, movie theaters, pool halls, uh, doctors, lawyers, dentists, just the kind of small businesses that make a place vibrant and en engaging for folks. Well, in 1921, there was a young black man, 19 years old, in Tulsa, he walked into this building, um, and there was a, uh, they had the elevator, like people that helped you go up and down the elevators back in the day, uh, was a young white lady. Um, and she claimed, like in the, like he had raped her, yelled out, and, and uh, long story short, he's arrested. And uh, the people from, uh, the black people from Greenwood came to the police station because they were worried about him getting lynched. And they wanted to protect him and make sure that didn't happen. The jail was surrounded by a group of white people. The words led to uh, violence, and there was shots fired. And at, at the end of the day, 12 people had died, uh, 10 white people, uh, 2 black people. And, and so kind of people went to their homes. But the white uh, people in Tulsa like, got up this mob of people and rushed across the literal tracks right, where they separated the blacks from the whites. And for two days, they looted and raided uh, I've got some, just some numbers here, so I, I wouldn't forget. But at, at the end of two days, there were 1,200 homes and businesses destroyed in the black community. Hundreds of black residents died, and a thriving community was burned to the ground. I've got some pictures of, I think. Do we have some pictures? So this is the aftermath of what happened. It looks like a war zone in Greenwood. I got a couple of you want to go to show the other ones. I mean, obviously it's... 100 years ago, quality's not so good. And then, then one more, of Mount Zion Church. 
on fire. Um, now, the, the Oklahoma Bureau of, of Vital Statistics said 36 people died. Just a couple years ago, 2001, they, they re-examined and kind of reopened the case, and they said that up to 300 African-American lives were killed in the rioting over those two days. More than 10,000 were left homeless, uh, and 40 blocks were left smoldering. And survivors recount that there were black bodies loaded onto trains and dumped off bridges into the Arkansas River or tossed into mass graves just 98 years ago or so in our, our country. And this has largely been not part of our curriculum as a country. Like, I, I didn't know when I, when I hear that. Like, I, I, I just don't even know how to respond. And so when we um, talk about black history, well, we want to know. We need to know. We need to be educated about these things. Um, so we, we have this month to help us re- remind us, but also to help us inspire hope. Because um, a lot of times when we hear these things, our initial response uh, is, is shame and, and guilt, like uh, white, white guilt, right? Um, but if we can step into the gospel and into the, the grace and justice and mercy of God and allow that to, so we, we don't hide from this past, we step into it and, and let like, forgiveness and mercy roll over us like as a, as a people, then we can move forward in healing and we can have hope and I can point to something better for, for our kids. Like we can have that deep shalom of God. And so uh, I haven't even got to my sermon yet. This is just all intro, like why we're going through black history. Uh, this is the light stuff. We never know. Um, but I thought it would be helpful just to give a bit of introduction to why we we need to have Black History Month in our church so that we can see the image of God in our black brothers and sisters, at least as a starting point. Amen? Amen. Amen. So now let's have some fun. So the question is, is Christianity a white man's uh, religion? No. That's it. Amen. Let's pray. We're going home. I told you last week that was going to be the question. We're going to answer it. Uh, well, but let's put it another way. Is, is Christianity just a benefit of slavery? At, uh, well, you know, at least um, African-Americans, they found faith as a result of slavery. It's just, a, you know, a perk of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that's the argument uh, so that, that you'll hear sometimes. And there is an understudy, there's a generalized idea that Christianity is not for black people. That uh, it's just a recent development on the continent of Africa itself. Um, and it, so here's the argument. The Bible is a white man's book. Written, written by white guys for white people, the original FUBU. Um, and because it is the white man's religion, the argument goes, then black people should you know, reject it and return to more traditional African religions. After all, Christianity, Christianity has been used to keep black people passive. So that's the argument, okay? Have you ever heard anything like that? Yes, okay, all right. Um, and there, there's an undercurrent in, in our culture that still, still says that. And recent events uh, brought to light the notoriety of the black Hebrew Israelites. Black Hebrew Israelites is an umbrella term for, uh, I mean, there's different groups that fall within that category, um, which they would say um, typically 
and their, their beliefs are varied, the black Hebrew Israelites. So this is just very broad. But it's generally uh, people of color, color usually African Americans, who say they are the descendants of the lost tribe of ancient Israelites. Even uh, rapper Kendrick Lamar on his last album has a song. Uh, the term that black Israelites use for God is, is Yah. He has a song titled Yah. And one of his lyrics is, the devil... No, that's a different one. All right, I'll get to that lyric in a second. I'm an Israelite. Don't call me black no more. So that this this kind of this undercurrent. And so this group would say that the Bible and Christianity has been used to keep black people docile, disenfranchised, and marginalized and ignorant. And this is not a new idea. I mean, if you go back to the 90s, anybody remember Ice Cube? When I Get to Heaven was his song, and his lyric said, the devil made you a slave and he gave you a Bible. In other words, like this is the white man's religion. And, and one of the problems is that... Um, well, so the black community, uh, so this group, that some have rejected Christianity because of this Jesus right here. Let me, uh, let me put up this Jesus. Blonde hair, blue-eyed. Like, if that is Jesus, we don't want no part of him, right? And so I can understand that line of reasoning. If Jesus was the invention of white people to keep people of color down, then I can understand the desire to pull away. And if all we had was conjecture and rumor and theories, then maybe these ideas would have some legs to stand on. That's if. And one of the problems is that the white church in America, in large swaths, has whitewashed Jesus. Like we, we see him as white, our Bibles, our, our Sunday school curriculum, it is this Jesus that we have portrayed. Now this is starting to, to change. Uh, I've got another picture here. This is a picture... Uh, from a Bible. This is from a Bible called My Favorite Bible Stories. And uh, I had this up on my computer, and the boys came in while I had this up on the screen. I was like, hey, guys, you boys, you know who this is? And Ryan's kind of studying it. It's like, yeah, but that doesn't look like him. As my eight-year-old, I was like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean? That's not David? And uh, what, what Britt was thinking was, well, the pictures I've seen of David are white, right? So even, even a small child, the way that he has begun to, to read the Bible uh, is as, it's a white, white people, a white, white Jesus. Um, anybody uncomfortable? We're good? We're all right? Now, we should be thoughtful in the way that we look at history and let history uh, talk, talk for itself, and, and we should push back against any characterization, characterizations of Jesus as white, or that Christianity was, was developed or, or created by white people. It's just a lie. Like Jesus was not white. I thought I'd give you more amens. Jesus was not white. I mean, if you look at it, just a map of like where things took place, like Middle East, Africa, we're going to get into some of that. But uh, white people didn't live there, okay? Um, that's all right, you can clap, that's all right. I give myself a clap. Uh, now, both, for everybody who's here, white, black, and the, and the hues in between, we understand the origins of our faith. That's all I want us to do, is to, to open up our eyes to the origins of our faith, uh, because I believe Satan is the father of lies. And if, and if he can get these lies, uh, us to believe things about the, the origin of our faith, then maybe he can begin to poke holes in our faith. So we, we want to search for truth, and we're going to do that in Acts chapter 8 
for our last, uh, how much time I got? We got some stuff to do today. We got some people to baptize, to rejoice with. But Acts chapter 8, just for a few minutes. Verse 26, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. I'm going to read it to you. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and went on his way. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. Some versions say Candace. It was just, it was a title for the queen. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled the road, they came to some water, some heated water in a tank in a church. All right. And the eunuch said, look, here's some water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So the book of Acts is about what happens after the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. It, ta- it tells us like, what happened, how it happened, who it happened to. And in Acts chapter 2, we studied it. Uh, about six months ago, was the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, there was people that spoke languages from all around the known area. Uh, I'll just show you here a a brief slide. So it was in Jerusalem, Judea is in that that small area. And Acts chapter 2 records all of these other uh, cities, people, representatives from these areas who were there and understood what was happening in their languages. It was uh, when Tongues was spoken, and, and so Acts chapter 2 talks about Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, and goes through the list. And this was a foretaste of who the gospel was for. But after Acts chapter 2, the disciples mostly stay around Jerusalem. They don't really go out too far. I mean, they've got some work to do for several years. It isn't until there's persecution that they begin to go out. And the first place they go is, is north to their estranged cousins, to the Samaritans who they despised. And that's in the first part of Acts chapter 8. Um, and, and then, so it goes north, and now we read that the gospel has come to an Ethiopian. Now, where's Ethiopia? And you guys know it. You guys know your uh, geography. That's good. So here, if you don't hear anything else I say today, before the gospel went to Europe... It went to Africa. One more time. Before the gospel went to anybody who looked like me, it went to Africa. Before it went to any Anglo lands, just let that sink in. I'm like, we could stop right here. And like that is all you need to know to say, is Christianity a white man's religion? Well, who got it first? Africa. There you go. You're You're starting to... 
Uh, I mean, this is a historical fact that the gospel went to Africa first, and it's not an accident, but by God's design. It was God who sent an angel to make sure it happened. It wasn't just like Philip was in Samaria and like people are coming to Jesus and they're being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't like, you know, I think I have a, a feeling in my gut. I need to go south. God didn't want him to miss it. Sends an angel, tells him, go south. It was that important to God that he would send an angel to make sure it happened. Um, so it is a malpractice of history to pretend that the story of the Bible does not overwhelmingly take place in lands belonging to people of color. And it's told about people of color. Maybe not always black, but you cut Africa out of the Bible and you lose large swaths of what we call salvation history. Like of the story, the story, I mean, from the very beginning, and next, next week we're going to take a survey and go through, I'm going to show you just a, a little bit more, but it's the story of Abraham in Africa and the story of Joseph in Africa, in the story of Moses and the children of Israel in Africa, and Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in Africa, and after Jesus, uh, Mark, the, the gospel writer, is, is said to have gone to Africa, and Perpetua, one of the most famous Christian martyrs, we'll talk about her next week, Athanasius and Augustine, these great minds of the Christian faith from Africa. Um, and so, like I said, next week we're going to take a survey, we're going to go, and we're going to even Maybe compare the number of references to people from Africa compared to, uh, to people from white Anglo lands, Anglo lands, and see who is referenced more in Scripture. Who do you think? You don't even need to come next week. You're good. All right. Africa. You got it. Uh, so, so we have to, we have to reject any notion that people of color are anything less than the objects of God's affections from the very, from the very beginning. And the black presence in the Bible is not incidental, coincidental, or accidental, but black people showing up in the Bible is purposeful. It is intentional, and it is deliberate. That is the story that we have. And in Acts chapter 8, the first non-Jew, non-Samaritan to come to the faith was a black African man from Ethiopia. And from all accounts, this man, he's wealthy, he is well-educated, he is politically connected black man. Uh, he financed his journey to Jerusalem from Ethiopia with his, own, with his own funds and his own personal driver, all right? He was not there because someone had forced him. He was not there because he was a slave. He was not being coerced to believe in this gospel. Uh, we're not, ancient Ethiopia in scripture, when it talks about Ethiopia, it includes, also includes uh, part of Sudan, what we uh, historians refer to as, as Nubia, and so it could be that he was from actual Ethiopia, current day, or from Sudan. Either way, it was probably at least 2,000 miles, 2,600 if it was Ethiopia. That is a five-month journey. Like, you remember the Oregon Trail? Anyone ever play that game growing up where you had to shoot the squirrels? The first video game. Um, the Oregon Trail, 2,000 miles. Took four to six months from, like, uh, the Missouri River all the way to Oregon. This journey that this man took, a five-month journey, one way that he financed himself, um, this was no easy journey. He has a handwritten scroll of Isaiah. Like you just didn't have handwritten scrolls of the Bible back in the day because they were expensive. Like a synagogue, everybody would go in together to get a portion of the scripture. They'd keep it locked up, get it out on the Sabbath, read it, lock it back up. 
Here he is traveling in the desert with his own portion. So he is a man of means. He's probably reading the Greek Septuagint. The Septuagint was the, the version of Scripture at that time that was available. So he's reading Greek on his own scroll. So he's educated. He has means. I mean, this guy, he's got some things going for him. And, and whether you are black or white, I pray that you would have the same desire for truth as this man. The same desire for truth. Um, and for all those who act like the Christian faith has been forced upon black people, or that through the pillaging of Africa, people came to know Jesus, we can see from Acts 8 that that is a lie. And lies misconstrue identity, and misconstrued identities derail destiny. And so you cannot know who you are if you believe lies. You cannot. Um, and the gospel has been in Africa so long that it is not a stretch for me to say that Christianity could be counted as a traditional African religion in itself because it's been in Africa so long, uh, almost 2,000 years. Uh, the problem is the American church is wholly ignorant of its African roots. And we're, we'll unpack that more next week. And, uh, but today's passage gives us a window into how the gospel came to Africa. Um, where are we at? All right. A few more minutes. So, now, I, I am not a Christian because I'm white. I'm a Christian because I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. I hope you're amening for yourself being a sinner, needing Jesus too, and not me <laughs> being a sinner. You can amen for me being a sinner. <laughs> Uh, and this gospel, it's bigger than any one ethnic group. Like, it is bigger than white people. It's bigger than Latinos, bigger than black people. Like, this, like, everybody deserves to hear the gospel in their own context and not a version of, of white colonial Christianity, all right? Just the, just the gospel, just the good, plain news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Philip, he's been preaching up north in Jerusalem, uh, to those despised Samaritans. And, and now he hears from God, and, and just a, a, of all the things that we could say, of all the people that were in the chariot, why this man? Like all the people that God could say, Philip, this guy needs Jesus. Why, why this man? And what, I mean, the first readers of the book of Acts, like we're reading it years later after it's been written, but while it's taking place, there's no New Testament. Right? But the first readers who would have, who would have got received the book of Acts, they're reading it, what would they have, uh, how would they have read that when they read, oh, here's an African man coming to the faith at the very, very beginning. And one thing we can say is that God shows concern for people of color. And it's always been his intent for black people to know the truth of Jesus and for white people to know the truth of the gospels. And these verses also remind us that God uses injustice to bring about justice. So we read it, but in verse 30, it says, Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading Isaiah. And do you understand? And the man says, how, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? And then he reads this passage, the passage that he's reading on the scroll. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before it, its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked him questions like, who, who was this man? And this was at a time when there was no New Testament yet. 
And so in God's providence, like this was probably the best portion of scripture that this man could be reading to prepare his heart to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like who is this, this man? Uh, and the Ethiopian had been trying to interpret the passage, but he had never met anybody like this. Somebody who had suffered innocently on the behalf of others, who was in himself entirely innocent. Uh, someone who uh, didn't speak up, though they, they faced accusations, and, and it refers, Philip tells him, well, this is Jesus, and he goes through, and, and so in Isaiah 53 is where this passage is taken from. I want to read just a few more verses that uh, the Ethiopian unit probably would have read. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And like I said, the eunuch, he, he knew no one who fit this description. And Philip begins from the beginning and explains, this is Jesus. Jesus faced injustice for you and me. And Jesus, it was Jesus who laid down his life. It was Jesus who knew no sin, who became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when Philip was finished, the eunuch was like, I believe. I'm in. Why, why can't I, why shouldn't I be baptized? I, I believe that Jesus is the Savior, and he was, he was ready and this man had just traveled thousands of miles from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. We don't have time to go into the whole story, but he was most likely a, a Gentile, a convert to Judaism. So when he got to Jerusalem to worship, he couldn't get in the temple. Like there was an outer court for the Gentiles where he, he was allowed to go in. Further, he was a eunuch. A eunuch means uh, that he, he, his manhood, had been, he had been castrated, had been taken from him. And so that made you unclean. In, in, the, in the Jewish law. So that was two strikes. Like, uh, he's a Gentile. He can't come in because he is unclean. And in, in ancient times, like, if you didn't have kids, your life was, like, almost purposeless. Didn't have much meaning because you wanted your kids to be able to pass on who you were in your family line. And, and so he had none of that. So he had traveled for five months only to be rejected at the temple. And so now he's asking Philip, and I don't know if, if there was fear or trembling in his voice, like, like could, 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 I, could I get that? Is there any reason I? And Philip, Philip said, yes, yes, this is for you. This is for you. And, and that is the same, like today, I don't know where you are uh, spiritually, if, if God might be speaking to your heart, and, and maybe you have been rejected in the past, rejected uh, by family, or rejected even by the church, and you want to like, is this for me? And, and I would say, yes, just like it was for the eunuch, it is for each one of us who is here today, regardless of our ethnic background. And, and I like how the text concludes that after he was baptized, he went on his way rejoicing, like when our lives, when we meet Jesus and our lives have been transformed, there is rejoicing that takes, that takes place. And um, the eunuch, after coming to know Jesus, returns home. And we're not sure if it was this eunuch or this Ethiopian or if it was others who, who heard the gospel and then brought it back or how it happened. But a church formed in Ethiopia that for 1,800 years thrived and the outside world didn't know about it. Like it wasn't 
part of history. We still probably don't. This church is still going, but for 1,800 years, nobody knew about it. All because God sent a messenger to Philip and said, go south. There was a man, there was a people who I love who need Jesus. Amen.